We are continuing our series on the Holy Spirit called Catch the Wind. And this, uh, this particular week, we're not talking quite as much directly about the Holy Spirit, but trust me, this is all about the Spirit's work in our lives and fits um, with our main themes and ideas. So let's pray, and then I'm going to tell you a story. Our Heavenly Father, as we open the Word today, I pray that you would help us to understand and accept the things that are taught in it. May your Spirit work in our hearts and in our minds so that we can know the truth and so that we can know what to do with that truth. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So a couple of years ago when I moved to Anchorage from out in Palmer, um, I bought a house that's over by uh, Minnesota and Raspberry. And uh, the front porch on this house uh, was uh, in good enough shape to pass the inspection, but I could see that it wasn't going to be too long before it was going to kind of need some, some help. Um, and a couple of summers later, it was really starting to sag a bit when you'd walk over on the one side, or kind of the whole thing would kind of droop down. And if you kind of put your weight like that, it would really, the whole deck would kind of bounce up and down. And so clearly, it was in need of some repairs. So I started working on a partial demolition so that I could replace the rotted out section of the, of the deck and leave the other part. And this is, uh, you'll see there on the screen what I found when I took off the railing, uh, which was not looking too good. And then um, I could see pretty clearly why it was sagging and moving when I stepped on that corner because it was uh, pretty well <clears throat> rotted out there. So there's no question that some significant repairs were going to be needed. Uh, but I was still hoping that the other side of the deck was going to be okay. I, I cut off the bad section, and I plan to save the good half. So who thinks they have a pretty good idea of what happened next on this project? Um, yeah, so the more I cut off and removed the rotted section, the more I discovered more rot, even in the part that had felt fairly solid and okay. It wasn't as bad as the the rotted section, but it was not good. And uh, so pretty soon the deck looked like this. And, uh, and I had to start fresh and build a whole new deck on there. And I was pretty pleased with the way it all turned out. In the end, it was a, a pretty nice project. It took me the whole summer to, to get it done, but, um, but it turned out pretty nice. So what's the point of this story? Well, the point is that people often think about themselves the way that I thought about my deck when I started this project, right? It needs some work, there's some bad sections, but if I can just get rid of the bad parts and replace them with some good parts, then it's mostly okay, right? So, you know, I have some bad habits, I need to get rid of some of my faults, and I need to start some new good habits to replace those things, but... Um, if I just replace the old rotten parts of my life with a few new good parts, things are going to be okay. Um, but as we dig into our lives and we start to uh, give it a good inspection, we find out that the rot is a lot worse than we thought it was. And, uh, and, and even the parts that we thought were okay are really not too good. So we need 
not just to make a few tweaks to our lives and after that everything will be okay. What we need is to start from scratch. So let's take a look at some of what the Bible teaches about the human condition and about this idea of starting a new life. Romans chapter 3 is where we're going to start off, uh, starting with verse 9 in Romans chapter 3, where it tells us, if we can find it here, here we are, Romans chapter 3 verse 9 says, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? So um, he's already been talking about how many people are, are, uh, have problems with sin, and he says, what do, what do we think? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Not even one. That means not me. And that means not you. I'm not righteous, and you're not righteous. So how bad is it? Well, you and I do not understand. We do not seek God. We have turned away. And you and I have together become worthless. We do not do good. Now, the Bible does not teach that we are as bad as we could be, right? Um, People do have some restraint, and we don't do all the bad things that we could do. Um, And it's not true that we don't do anything at all that's good. But it is true that we are very flawed, right? It's not just some small imperfections. It's not just a rotten board or two in the corner of the deck, In another place in the Bible, in in, in Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to spend a little time here. This is the verses that we read together a few minutes ago. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit that's now at work in those who are disobedient. That's, That's pretty stark. You were dead. The Bible is telling Christians, it's talking to to Christian people here, and it's telling them that before they became Christians, they were dead in their sins. So in what sense were you dead? Well, obviously he doesn't mean that people were not physically alive. Uh, It means spiritually dead, which means no spiritual vitality. We're not spiritually sick, We're not spiritually injured. We're spiritually dead. And he describes that in the next verses here. He says, all of us also lived among them at one time. So here he's he's making it very clear who exactly he's talking about here. Um, The last verse he said, as for you, you're dead. Uh, But now he's saying all of us. All of us. It's not something that's uh, specifically true about the people in Ephesus, you know, that he was writing to, you guys over there, you were dead in your sins. No, he's saying this is true about all of us, including the apostle himself and all other Christians. 
All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. The spiritually dead person gratifies the desires of the flesh and follows its desires and thoughts. Again, that doesn't mean that people have no self-control or, 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 that, and it, or that we don't recognize that some of our desires are bad and stay away from them, but it does mean that people follow their own thoughts and desires. They do what they believe to be right rather than what God tells them is right. So they are their own judge of right and wrong for themselves. And if what they believe happens to fit in with what God says in some areas, which does happen certainly in, in many areas, uh, uh, then in those cases they'll happen to, believe, uh, to behave in just the way that God wants them to behave. But when there is a conflict between their own desires and their own thoughts and what they think is right and wrong and, and God's revealed will, they will follow their own desires and thoughts. And most of the time for non-Christians, which is who we're talking about here as non-Christians, they don't even consider what God's will is for their lives. All they do is follow their own desires and thoughts which is not surprising because they are spiritually dead. But the Bible tells us that they don't even understand God and His ways anyway, so why should they follow Him? It says in, in the book of 1 Corinthians, it says, the person without the Spirit, so that's the, the non-Christian person, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. So the person without the Spirit, the spiritually dead person, they do not accept the things that come from God. God's ways are foolishness to them. That doesn't mean that everything God has ever instructed His people to do uh, is misunderstood or rejected. Obviously, a lot of non-Christians uh, overlap a lot in the ways that they understand things. They, they believe in honesty and kindness and helping the poor and faithfulness in marriage and, and many other things that are in line with God's will for us. But these are only the things that also make good sense to their own ways of thinking and their own feelings and their own desires. As soon as God asks something of them that conflicts with their own sensibilities, and those situations are certain to come up, we're talking about an infinite God who knows all things and very finite people who do not understand their own situations. So there's definitely going to be conflicts between the way God sees things and the way people see things. And when those conflicts come up... Um, they are going to choose their own heart over the heart of God. To do otherwise would be foolishness to them. See, they are spiritually dead. They do not have the Spirit, and so they will not submit to God when He tells them to do something or not to do something that they do not agree with. In every place where the things that come from the Spirit of God do not agree with what they believe already, or, or already have a, a desire to do, then they do not accept it. So who am I talking about here? 
says, all of us used to live among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Because if you don't have the Spirit, if you are not a Christian, then you are spiritually dead in your sins. So you are my rotten deck. It might look like there are some good parts and we only need to fix a few things uh, here and there and, and fix this one corner over here, but if we dig down, we realize that in fact, the rot goes through it all. Some parts are worse and some parts are better, but there are no really good parts. It all needs to be torn down and we need a fresh start. And that's exactly what God offers. Back in our, 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 our passage in Ephesians here that we were reading, back to the, verse 4. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. So here's what this is saying. Here's what this is saying. It's saying, we were all spiritually dead. That means we were rejecting God's will and His ways, unless they happen to line up with what we thought anyway. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And despite all of that, God loves us. And not just a little bit. It says here, the Bible says that God has great love for us. And because of His great love and mercy, God made us alive. And this is a result of grace. So there's three big theological terms here. Three big key words in this verse. Look at the screen, see if you can pick out the three words. The three words are love in the first line, mercy in the second line, and then grace down in that fourth line. Love, mercy, and grace. All three of these are reasons for this new life that God has given us. He loves us. He cares about us. Because we're good people? No. It's, uh, it is while we are dead in our transgressions that He loves us. And God has mercy for us. Mercy means that He does not give us the punishment that our sins deserve. Those consequences that are coming for the, for the wrong things you've done, God says, no, I have mercy. I'm not going to, to do that. His mercy causes him to withhold punishment. And God gives grace. That means not only does he withhold the punishment, he gives us good things that we do not deserve. Instead of punishment, we get good things instead. He gives us his spirit. He gives us new life. So love, mercy, and grace. For who? For who do gets love, mercy, and grace? For sinful people. For people who are so helpless to do what is right that they're spiritually dead. They're lost in their sin. They can't even understand and accept the things of God. And yet, God offers them love, mercy, and grace. The technical term for this new life that God gives us here is regeneration, new life. And this is what we need. We don't need to make a few small changes to our lives. We need regeneration. We need a whole new 
life. And there's a great story in, in the gospel of John about a time when Jesus taught about this idea of, of rebirth um, to a, a guy here in, in John chapter 3. So you can flip over to John chapter 3, and uh, we're going to get to that in just a second. In this story, uh, this takes place in the time in Jesus' life where he's starting to gain popularity. It was uh, when Jesus was about 30 years old that he started going around and preaching and teaching and also uh, performing miraculous signs to prove that the things that he was teaching about were really coming from God. And, and there was one of these guys, one of the Jewish leaders, his name was Nicodemus. Um, he heard Jesus teaching, he saw some of the signs, and he heard the stories about all that Jesus was saying and doing, and he decided he needed to meet this guy one-on-one. And so he came to Jesus at night when there's no crowd to have a spiritual conversation with him and talk to him about, um, about things. And what we have here in John, it's a pretty brief conversation. I'm sure that their actual conversation probably lasted quite a lot longer than this. But we have a a small summary here of what they talked about that God has recorded for us so that now we can read this here a couple thousand years later. Um, So we're going to start in John chapter 3 and verse 3, where it says, Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. That, that opening there, very truly I tell you, that's something that Jesus would say uh, when he was about to say something really profound and that he really wanted people to pay attention to. And this was, I'm, I'm going to say something big here, so pay attention. Very truly I tell you. And, 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 and what he says is, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. And that is, no one can be a part of the true people of God. No one can live for eternity with God in paradise. No one can go to heaven unless they are born again. So born again, what does that mean? It means that no one will see the kingdom of God unless they have an entirely new life. If you want to be in the people of God, you need to go from spiritual death to spiritual death. Life. You need to begin the new Christian life as a spiritual child starting a brand new life. And that is a tough one for Nicodemus to accept. Remember who I said he was? He was one of the spiritual leaders of the Jews. In fact, he was uh, part of the ruling council of religious scholars who uh, were kind of a religious and governmental authority in the land. Um, He knew his Bible, right? He followed the law of Moses. He worshiped the one true God at his temple in Jerusalem. He kept the Sabbath at his synagogue every week. He ate kosher. He was not some pagan idol-worshiping sinner like a lot of people around him were. And so when Jesus says no one, and the strong implication is Jesus is including Nicodemus here, No one, not even you, can see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. That's a pretty big uh, stretch for a guy like this. So, verse 4, How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Now, some people think Nicodemus was pretty dense and didn't understand that Jesus was speaking spiritually instead of physically here. I think Nicodemus was a little smarter than that. Um, He understood what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying, 
you need to start completely new. And Nicodemus, continuing the metaphor, is saying, somebody like me, starting over from scratch? How can that happen? I, I'm an old man. I, I've been following God in this way for so long. And what's really so wrong with the way I'm following God? Um, so, why could Jesus say that he, a man like Nicodemus, needed to start over? He goes on in verse 5, Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. Um, Continuing on here, verse 7, you should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So however hard it was for Nicodemus to accept his own need for regeneration and for a new spiritual life, Jesus assured him that all people need to be born of the Spirit. They need a new life from God in order to be free from their sins. And exactly how all that works is a bit of a mystery, according to Jesus. He says, look, it's like the wind. We don't really understand exactly how it all, it all works, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, even if we are relatively good people before we become Christians, we still need a totally new spiritual life. Even if we are religious and we're trying to do our best like Nicodemus, we all need a new spiritual life. Because here is the truth. Nicodemus was not a good person. He fell far short of God's will for his life. He had the law and the prophets. He had much of God's will revealed to him, but he did not live up to what he knew. He was like a lot of other people who also have some knowledge of God but they are not able to live up to what they know to be right. They fail to do what is right. Me too. But the good news is that because of His great love for us and His mercy toward us and His grace for us, God offers us new spiritual life. We can be born again. And, and it is through this new life that we can be the people of God and we can see the kingdom of heaven. So how can we be born again? Jesus tells Nicodemus a few verses down here in, in, in chapter 3. I'm starting in verse 14 now where he says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So Jesus is tell, uh, referring to a story that Nicodemus knows very well from the Exodus, the time when uh, Moses led the people of God out of slavery in Egypt, and they were on their way to the promised land, and they're traveling through the wilderness. But traveling through the wilderness was not an easy life. Uh, people were not used to this kind of living. They did not like this kind of living, and they complained about it a lot, and they were rebelling against God. And so God sent discipline to let them know that what they were doing was wrong. In this particular case, the discipline that God sent them was snakes. 
Um, and these snakes came and they were biting people, very painful. Some people even died from these snake bites. And then people realized, we have been wrong. We need to uh, submit to God and we need to, to put our faith back in God. And so God sent um, a way for them to be saved from this punishment. So he had Moses make a bronze snake and put it on a pole and lift it up for people to look at. And, and, and if people showed their faith in God's instructions and they did something that might not have made much sense to them, but God told them to do it, so they were going to do it. And so they put their faith in God and believed in his means for healing. And they looked at the snake in faith, then they would be healed and God would forgive their sin. And Jesus is saying here, he's referring to that story, and he's saying, just like Moses lifted up that bronze snake, and people could look, uh, express their faith in God and, and obedience to his commands by looking at the snake in faith, a similar thing was going to happen to him. See, the Son of Man, that he, the phrase he uses here, the Son of Man must be lifted up, that's Jesus' way of referring to himself. Uh, he uses it consistently throughout the Gospels. He talks about the Son of Man. He's always talking about himself. And he says that he must be lifted up so that everyone believes may have eternal life. That is, those who believe in Jesus and look to him in faith and obedience will be born again and see the kingdom of God. And then we have the next verse is one of the most famous verses in the whole Bible, John 3.16, where it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. See, God loves people so much that he sent Jesus to save us, so that when we look to him in faith and obedience, we will be born again and have a new spiritual life that will last forever with God in eternity. Verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. See, love, mercy, and grace. God sent Jesus to save people from our spiritually dead condition in which we were by nature deserving of wrath and offers us eternal life. This is a truth to celebrate. It is the best news imaginable. Our greatest need has been met by God. We are rescued from our hopeless situation. But here's the thing, though. Even though in these last couple of verses, it, it says that God loved the world and that Jesus was sent to save the world, that does not mean that everyone is automatically saved. Right? The new spiritual birth is not just automatically given to everyone. The offer is made to everyone. There is no one who will come to God and say, I want to put my faith in Jesus. And God says, oh, I didn't mean you. Right? There's no one who is the wrong gender, the wrong race, the wrong age, the wrong nationality, or has committed too many sins that were just too bad. Salvation is offered to everyone. But it is not automatically given to everyone. Continuing on here in John chapter 3, here we are in verse 18, where it says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe 
stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So whoever does not believe in Jesus, that is, whoever does not look to Him in faith and obedience, stands condemned because they have failed to accept the offer of salvation. They have failed to put their faith in Jesus. So why would someone not accept the offer of a new spiritual life? He tells us in the next verse. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. You see, people choose their sin over God. This is what we saw earlier in the verse that said that those who do not have the Spirit do not accept the things that come from God because they are spiritually discerned. They choose their own way and not God's way. They do not accept that they are dead in their sins. They do not accept that they need to put their trust in Jesus. They feel that they can make their own decisions and they'll be just fine without being born again. And there's two ends of the spectrum, really, on why people do this. One is what is, uh, is emphasized here in these verses is that people are evil, and so they choose darkness over light, right? Because they don't want their sins to be exposed for what they are. They want to celebrate their sins as good rather than acknowledging them as evil. But the other end of the spectrum is those who are, think that they're already good enough, right? Religious people who think that by their moral performance and following their religious rules, they're doing just fine. They don't need to be born again. They're right where they need to be. It is those other people who need to reform and who need to change. And no doubt Nicodemus was struggling with that end of the spectrum, Right? The good news for him is that he does come up a couple more times in the Bible, Nicodemus, um, and we're not given 100% clarity on exactly what he's thinking, but it appears that he does choose to put his faith in Jesus and that, uh, and that he has made the choice that is described in our last verse today, which is here in verse 21, but whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. These people who come into the light that reveals the truth about their behavior and their need for a Savior are the ones who are born again and now live a new life in Christ, an eternal life that will remain forever with God in heaven. One last verse in in 2 Corinthians. Therefore... If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. So here's my question. Where are you today? Are you still in need of a fresh life? Do you need to be born again? And if you haven't been born again, then the answer is yes. You need it. Don't think that all you need is to make a few changes to your life and then you're going to be okay. 
All of us are spiritually dead before we put our faith in Jesus. But God offers you eternal life. So don't pass up that offer. Look to Jesus in faith and obedience and you can be born again. For those of us who are Christians, we have been born again. We're looking at this as as something that has happened to us in the past. So what do the truths that we've looked at this morning mean for those of us who are already Christians? Well, I have three applications, three suggestions. There are sure are more things, maybe something else that you're thinking of, but here's three things that I thought of that are applications of this truth for us who have already been born again. The first one is be grateful to God for what He has done for you. Be thankful, be grateful that God has had mercy on you, that God has given you His grace and, and, and try to live a life of gratitude and express your gratitude to God. Second application, the Bible says that we should, and this is a quote, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. This is not to earn our calling. This is we've been called by God. We've been given salvation. We've been given a new life. Now live worthy of what you've, what you've got. And it describes that worthy life as characterized by these things. Humility, gentleness, patience, love, unity, and peace. You live a life characterized by those things, you will be living a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Third thing, third application for those of us who've already been born again is we need to be helping others to find salvation. We need to to, to show other people to Jesus so that they too can be born again. Because unless they are born again, they will not see the kingdom of God. Those people that you know who are not Christians will not see the kingdom of God unless they put their faith in Jesus. And we should be doing what we can, playing our part to help them to find salvation. So if you're, if you're following along in your bulletin, the last question in your notes there is, What is your application of these truths that we've heard today? If you've got your bulletin, go ahead and write that down. If you're not following along the bulletin, that's okay. Just think about that question right now. What are you going to do? Do you need to be born again? Do you need to put your faith in Jesus? Do you need to look to Him for salvation? Do you need to do one of these other things or or some other application? But figure out what it is that you are going to do because of the the great truths of God's love and mercy that we've seen today. And let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful for what you have done for us. Your grace and mercy are great. Your love is great. And I pray that we would always be appreciative and... and, uh, and grateful for the things that you've done for us. I ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.